you got your Bibles, open up Psalm 21. And we're going to take a look tonight at the other half. Remember last time we talked about Psalm 20, which was the prayer of the people uh, as they were heading into battle. Asking the Lord for His help, for His deliverance, uh, that He would carry them through, you know, whatever the hard time was that they were facing. Well, Psalm 21 is the victory psalm that they would sing after the victory. As, uh, as God answers the prayer of Psalm 20, that brings about the praise of Psalm 21. And I'm always reminded when I, when I consider the concept of, of the bringing praise, remember that, uh, remember when the children of Israel, they were between a rock and a hard place, uh, right in front of the, the, the Red Sea and, uh, Pharaoh's armies are coming down behind them like crazy, and they're sitting in that spot, and they begin to complain. You know, God, why'd you bring us here? Why is this happening to me? And sometimes that's how we look at the battle. When we're faced with the opportunity to do like the Psalms lay out for us, and and to provide a praise and a prayer to the Lord before the battle, asking for Him to give us a victory, and to realize that there are times... God calls us to risk. Sometimes God calls us to, to times and places and things that cost us something. There's a, there's a, a, a story about Joab and, and Abishai. I was, reminded, I, was, I was talking with Danielle earlier. She reminded me of the story. <clears throat> Joab and Abishai are going into battle. And neither one of them are really sure they're going to win. Big enemy. You know, Joab says, I'm going to go this way. You go that way. We'll meet in the middle. And then they say, and if the Lord wills, whatever the Lord wills, whatever God has for us, but we're going. You know, we're, we're pretty sure this is the direction, this is the purpose and the plan that God has for us. So we're going to go. And, and it reminds me of, uh, remember Jonathan and his armor bearer? You guys remember the story? Jonathan and his armor bearer, they're, they're, they're doing battle and Jonathan and his armor bearer are walking and they see the enemy, 10,000 of them. He'd see him over there and they go, you know what? God can deliver those guys with either the whole army or just you and me. So let's say you and I go over there and let's see what happens. And so there are times God calls us to risk. But when he calls us to that, when he leads us into the battle, we don't want to go like the children of Israel at the Red Sea. Oh, you brought me here to kill me. Because God was going to deliver them, right? And we want to have that attitude that that is like Joab and Abishai. That attitude that's like Esther when Esther says, "If I perish, I perish. I'm I'm, I'm going to go talk to the king. If I perish, I perish. Uh, who knows that I I I'm not supposed to be here for such a time as this, right? That this is my purpose and and the plan. So we want to be like those who would sing the prayer or call on the praise for the Lord before the battle." Instead of just after the victory. Before it starts. Before we know how it's going to work out. Before we know how all the pieces are going to land. See, that's, that's, that, that's living by faith. That's living in a place of faith saying, proclaiming, I trust you, God. I don't know how this is going to work. And so it's easy to praise God after He delivers you from cancer. It's easy to praise God after He's answered the prayer and given the things that, that have, we have petitioned for. What happens if we praise Him before? 
And we say like Joab and Abishai. Whatever you're going to do, God, you do. But, you know, we're here to do what you want. That's what this reminds me of in Psalm 20 and 21. The call upon the Lord for His deliverance. And then Psalm 21, the song of praise after. After. He says, The king shall have joy in your strength, O Lord. We've got to remind ourselves that sometimes we get it backwards and we praise God for His deliverance. We praise God because the disease went away. We praise God for the healing. We praise God for the the skill <coughs> of the of the surgeon, but we don't praise God for the strength that He had that, that got us through it all. We start to praise God for the goodness of the gift. You guys get what I mean? The man, it's a great gift, and it's it is a great gift, and we should praise Him for that. But are we also praising Him for the journey, <laughs> for the strength He gave us to to walk? Joab and Abishai they praise God. They say, man. Praise you, Lord, that you gave us the strength to fight this battle. Not just for the victory, but we're going to have joy in your strength because you're the things that we need. You're the stuff that we need in our life, that we're lacking, that we're, that we're desiring in our life. So look what he says. He says, uh, um, you have given him his heart's desire and have not withheld the request of his lips. So earlier he said, uh, in Psalm 20, may you give the desires. Now in Psalm 21, he says, you have given. You've heard the cry. You've answered the prayer. You've given him his heart's desire and have not withheld the request of his lips. So the victory comes and the, and the praise continues. He says in verse 3, for you meet him with the blessings of goodness. The, the idea for you meet him is, is a concept, the Hebrew word, is a concept for you went before him. Like you went ahead and prepared a table for me in the presence of my enemies. You get what, what I mean? That God went ahead. That God went before him. Prepared the ground. Prepared the place. Took care of the, 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 the struggles and the things that they were going through. So he said, for you meet me. I'm going into battle. And as I'm going into battle, there you are. You already have Things already prepared for me. You have set a crown of pure gold upon his head. <clears throat> it's God who raised him up. Right? It's not Joab who won the victory because he was so good with a sword. It's not Abishai who won the victory because he was fearless. It was God who raised them up. He put the crown on their head. He brings the blessing. Um, and he <clears throat> brings the goodness. It says... He asked life from you and you gave it to him. Length of days forever and ever. Now he's, he's speaking of the Davidic covenant. So the Bible is broken down in a series of covenants. Covenants are promises that God made to different people at different times. For example, we have the Abrahamic covenant, right? That through the seed of Abraham, all the nations of the world will be blessed. And I will bless those who bless you and curse those who curse you. That's the Abrahamic covenant. The Mosaic covenant. When, uh, when, when God made his covenant with Moses, uh, uh, I always have a hard time saying it. The, the Noahic covenant, the covenant with Noah, I won't flood the earth again. Right? You guys with me? The Davidic covenant was this. David, remember, said, I'm going to build you a house, God. I want to build you a house. And, and God said, I, I didn't ask you to build me a house. 
You're not going to build a house for me. Your son will build the house for me. But here's what I want from you. What I want from you is to tell you that I'm going to build you a house and it's going to last forever. And there will come a king through your line, through the line of David, that will sit on the throne of David forever. Now, when we follow God's covenants through the Bible, His promises, what we discover is each one of those promises is pointing to the same person. The promise in the Abrahamic covenant, the promise in the Mosaic covenant, the promise in Noah's covenant, the promise in David's covenant, all point to Messiah. The the coming of the one that was to crush the head of the serpent. Remember in Genesis 3, that's called the Proto-Evangelicum, the first mention of of the gospel, when the Messiah would crush the head of the serpent, would destroy the enemy, to set us free from sin, he would accomplish these things <clears throat> for us, and the people were looking for that fulfillment. And here he's pointing to that, to, to, to the fulfillment of the Davidic covenant. What's the Davidic covenant? It says that, that you would give him life and length of days forever and ever. Now we know David didn't live forever and ever, right? So when he's talking about length of days forever and ever, he's talking about that fulfillment through the promise. Messiah was going to come. The Old Testament scriptures guide 2,000 years back and further spoke of Messiah coming and being God in flesh. That 2,000 years later, we mess it up. We, get, we poke our nose in it and we say, oh, I'm sure that's not what he meant. But that's what he said. He said that uh, his name would be called... Emmanuel, which is what? God with us. Is that that hard to understand? (laughs) They shall call him Emmanuel. He will save his people from his sins. You will call him Jesus, for he will save his people from his sins. We see the, the parallelism throughout the scripture so that we can grasp the concept and the idea of Messiah. So this is what he's, he's looking at here. He says, his glory is great in your salvation, honor and majesty you have placed on him, for you have made him most blessed forever. You have made him exceedingly glad with your presence. It's all looking to the fulfillment and promise of the coming of Messiah. And then in verse 7, he says, For the king trusts in the Lord, and through the mercy of the Most High, he shall not be moved. Man, I, I always love it when God's people talk like that in Acts chapter 20, Paul says a similar phrase. He says, none of these things move me, nor do I count my life dear to myself, that I might finish my race with joy. Paul had a purpose, headed to Jerusalem. They didn't want him to go. But he said, no, even though hard times are coming, even though the battle is before me, even though there's, there's difficulty, it doesn't move me because I trust in the Lord. And here the psalmist is saying the same thing. The king trusts in the Lord. And so he won't be moved. If I don't trust in the Lord, I'm moved by every wind, every wave, every ripple. But if I trust in the Lord, then it doesn't matter how big the wave is. It just washes over me. Eventually, it comes down over my head so I can breathe again. And I trust in the Lord. But any number of us have been through circumstances that we could describe as being on the beach when the wave washes over you, if, if you've ever been at the beach. When the wave washes over you and, and it goes out far enough, it eventually drops down below and you're touching the ground again. 
I thought that was the one that was going to take me. But no, I trust in the Lord, so I'm not going to be moved. That's right. I'm going to trust in Him. I'm going to hold to Him. And God's going to carry me through. He's going to, he's going to give me what I need. And so the king trusts in the Lord. He trusts in the Lord. Remember, as we go through scripture in the Old Testament and we come to the capital L-O-R-D, you're looking at God's proper name. Yahweh. Y-H-V-H. We insert the vowels and we come up with Jehovah. Uh, but there's no J in the Hebrew alphabet, so that, that would be difficult for that to work out. Could be Yehovah. Um, or we put in other vowels and we come up with the word Yahweh. But it was the impronounceable name of God. It's all consonants. Y-H-V-H. Yahweh. The, the tetragrammaton. The impronounceable name of God. And so when we see that, we know that this is personal. The king's not just saying, I trust in God. Like, like there's a God up there. He's calling God by His name. He's calling God by his proper name. The, the king trusts in the Lord. He says, your hand will find all your enemies. Now, in verses 8 through 12, he's, he's talking about the final triumph over enemies. And here's what happens. We struggle with this concept sometimes when we go through Psalms. And we see all the talk about destroying the enemy and wiping out this and, and taking out that. When we look at that, you have to understand when we, when we look at the Psalms that we're, we're looking at the concept of evil... Not necessarily the incarnation of evil. Evil could be encapsulated in a lot of different ways. Sometimes it was different people groups because they were in, uh, uh, um, had a desire to wipe out the people of God or, or when were in utter rebellion. But most often the psalmist, when he's talking about, he's just talking about the day when evil's going to get put down finally. I mean, don't you look forward to that time? I don't know. I turn on the news and I see, oh, oh, here we go again. Somebody, another shooting at a school or, or somebody, uh, uh, killing their wife and their children and themselves. The, the events that take place, that's evil. And when the Bible says, it talks about wiping out evil and, and, and all of her children, it's not the idea that evil is encapsulated in this human form, but evil still exists and one day God is going to take it all out. And I long for that day, for the end of all that, for, for not ever having to think that a, that a, a little child is going to have to grow up in an abusing situation ever again. That somebody's not going to do something lame or get so strung out on, uh, on crack or meth that they do hurtful things to others just so they can get another fix. That's all the result of sin, evil in the world. And one day all that's going to be put down. So in verse 8, he says, your hand will find all your enemies. That's how I want you to, to picture it. Not as a people group or the uh, 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 obliteration of a people group, although sometimes scripturally we see that picture. But when we look at it in the Psalms, the, who's the enemy of God? It's not you. It's not, the, it's not even that guy that's, that does the horrible things. The enemy of God is sin, death. All of those things that, that he came to abolish, that he came so that you and I could uh, find victory from that enemy. And so as he talks about it, his hand is going to defeat every enemy. The Bible says the last, last enemy that will be defeated is death. Right? Death, where is your sting? 
He's going to put it down. Your right hand will find those who hate you. And you shall make them as a fiery oven in the time of your anger. Literally, in the time of your face. In the time when everyone... So he's talking about that time when Christ returns. When Messiah is on earth, when he's ruling and reigning, when he is, and all things have been put to right. He says, then it'll be the time of his face. You're going to be able to see him. You're not going to go, I wonder where God is today. No, you'll be able to say he's right over there. I can see him. The time of his face. The Lord will swallow them up in his wrath. And remember what wrath means. Sometimes there's two different words for wrath in the Greek. <clears throat> Thumios and orge. But the wrath used up most often to talk about the Lord is a predisposed judgment. The world is already condemned, right? We, all, we covered that in Romans enough. John chapter 3, if you need a little bit more, says that it's already condemned. The world's already condemned. But God so loved the world that He did what? He gave His only begotten Son, right? So that whosoever believes in Him would not perish, but have everlasting life. So He came to, to abolish, to put those things down. Condemnation is here. That concept, condemnation, already condemned, is the word similar to the word orge, wrath. The wrath of God is the judgment of God. One day the judgment of God comes. Nobody should be looking forward to that day. Nobody wants that day. I don't want justice. I want grace, mercy. I don't want justice. If I get what I deserve, I'm not going to like it at all. I, I, I want God's goodness. But if I find myself in a place where uh, I'm under God's judgment, how can I be under God's judgment? Well, the Bible tells in John chapter 3, to be under God's judgment means that I have not received Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior. There's one way, right? One way to the Father. I am the way, the truth, and the life. How many men come to the Father? No one comes to the Father except through Him. That means I put my faith and trust in Jesus Christ and His finished work, and God saves me. If I don't do that, I'm under wrath. That means there will be a day of, a, of accounting, a reckoning. There will be a day of reckoning. And that's what he's talking about. The Lord will swallow them in his wrath. It's not that God's mad. He's, oh, I'm so mad at you guys. It's that this is the day of judgment. And so you're swallowed in that judgment. Swallowed up because of the rejection. It says, and the fire will devour them. Their offspring will be destroyed from the earth. He's not talking about their children. He's talking about the absolute removal of evil. That means there's not going to be another generation. So there's, there's not going to be any offspring. They're all gone. They're descendants from among the sons of men. All of it. They, for they intended evil <clears throat> against you and devised a plot uh, which, were the, which they were not able to perform. Therefore you will make them turn their back you will make ready your arrows on your string toward their faces. So the idea that, that even though evil is going to try over and over again to put down God's people, God's always going to take care. There's always going to be a remnant. He'll turn the armies back. It's, it's amazing to me because scripturally, God, the promise of God for Messiah, the coming of Jesus Christ, they, the, the enemy... Uh, the devil had 
wiped out God's people so that the only person that was left was one baby. If the devil could have killed that one baby, he could have stopped God. But he couldn't. Because God wouldn't let him. The devil's not God's equal. The devil is out trying to, to foil, cause pain, destroy, cause problems. But the devil can't do nothing that God doesn't allow. Could the devil just go get Job when we studied Job? You remember? Could the devil just go do whatever he wanted to? He had to ask somebody. Who do you have to ask? He had to ask the Lord. And the Lord had to say, okay. They're not equals. The defeat is guaranteed. It's not like biting our nails. I wonder who's going to win. It's the fourth quarter and the devil's got the ball. He's driving, you know, oh no, what's going to happen? No, it's over. The battle's done. The quest now is for men's souls. Who's going with the devil? Who's going with the Lord? There's no in-between. One or the other. And that's based on, on where, where we'll, we are willing to put our choice. God's saying, man, uh, I'll turn him back. I won't let him wipe you out. When Haman wanted to wipe out the Jews uh, under the... Uh, a Medo-Persian Empire at the time of, uh, of Esther. Was, was he able to do it? He got pretty far, but God said no. Well, what about in modern times? What, what about uh, Hitler want, wanted to wipe out the Jews? Well, he got a lot of them, but was he able to do it? No. No. And, it, and there will be, whether it's Putin wanting to, to come down with Russia against Israel... Or it's ISIS, or it, I don't care who it is. Nobody can go where God won't let them. And if God lets them, then we find ourselves in a place like Joab and Abishai. I'm here, Lord. If you want to give the victory, deliver me through this, great. If not, uh, I'm, I'm His. Do what you need to do in my life to bring glory to you, to honor you. By my life, if that means I live out my days like Pastor Saeed in prison in Iran, then I live out my days in prison in Iran. And I glorify God by, by being where He has me to be and accomplishing what He has for me to accomplish. Nobody can do nothing that God don't let happen. So they say at verse 13, Be exalted, O Lord, in your own strength, and we will sing and praise your power. They always knew God could deliver. God could get us through. God could, could solve the problem. Hey, so we're trusting in you. We're trusting in you. Trusting in you before the battle. Trusting in you after the victory. No matter what. Either way. <clears throat> now that brings us into uh, uh, probably what some would call the Holy of Holies in the Psalms. Three psalms that are the shepherd psalms, the next three. Psalm 22, Psalm 23, Psalm 24. Everybody remember Psalm 23, right? I, we might make it tonight. I don't know. We'll see. It, it, a miracle could happen. But in the three shepherd psalms, all three are referring to the Messiah. And of the three, Psalm 22 is, is probably one of the most amazing 800 years prior to the existence of crucifixion, crucifixion is described in Psalm 22. 
before the promised Messiah was ever born, before Daniel ever prophesied about the fact that Messiah was going to die, we had pictures in the Old Testament in Genesis 22 when Abraham had to offer his son. Remember when God said, Abraham, take your son, the son whom you love, and offer him on the mountain that I will show you? And he took him to Mount Moriah, which today is Jerusalem, the place where the Temple Mount is. In fact, the area on Mount Moriah where they cut out the stones to go and build the temple, you know they had to cut stone out of the rock, right? They made the plateau, they're cutting out stone, shaping it, building the temple. That became the quarry. The quarry is where they would go with their prisoners to stone them. Well, there's a bunch of stones. It's the quarry. It makes sense, right? They took so many stones out of the quarry that they started to give it a name. They can. There are lots of stones. There are lots of stones. But they started to call this place by a certain name, Golgotha. Because it started to look like a skull on the side of the mountain. Sound familiar? A place where a father would offer his son and wouldn't stop. And Genesis 22 becomes a a picture, a symbol of what God would do one day. But that was a long time ago. Now we find ourselves in the Psalms and nobody knows. Nobody understands. Nobody gets why David wrote this. We know David wrote it. We know David wrote it down and it doesn't make any sense. It doesn't fit anything in his life. But in Acts chapter 20, we are told something interesting about David that sometimes we forget. We're told in Acts 20 that David was a prophet. I mean, sometimes God told David things that wasn't for him. That was for somebody down the line. You should recognize the first line from Psalm 22. You heard it from the cross. Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani. My God... My God, why have you forsaken me? Psalm 22. When a rabbi, whenever a rabbi wanted to tell his students to study a particular section of scripture, he would give them the first line. And then they would, his students would go find that line in scripture and study what was there. And when you read Psalm 22, it reads just like you're someone standing at the cross. Hearing the things the people are saying. Watching the things that they're doing. Psalm 22 only makes sense in light of Christ. In light of His sacrifice. In light of what He did. <clears throat> so as we look at these next three psalms, the first one is a psalm about the good shepherd who gives his life. For the sheep. That's Psalm 22. Psalm 23 is a, a psalm that is the good shepherd cares for his sheep. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. And then Psalm 24, the good shepherd returns in glory. So as we, as we look at these three, if we get through Psalm 22, we'll, we'll dance a jig tonight. But... As we go through these next three, I just want you to keep in mind, this is the shepherd psalm. Certainly the center of book one of the psalms, which goes through all of David's uh, psalms. So let's look at it. 
the chief musician set to the deer of the dawn a psalm of David. I want to bring out this point in that first verse. It says, my God. You see it. So even in this cry that sometimes we struggle with the concept, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? There is a statement of relationship, personal relationship. Not your God, not oh God, not it's my God. My God. It's a, the, <clears throat> the language that he's using as he lays this out for us, Jesus' words from the cross, is the moment when Jesus Christ would experience the true tragedy of the cross. What was the true tragedy of the cross? Look, the Bible tells in, in 2 Corinthians 5.21 that he who knew no sin did what? Became sin for us. That we might become the righteousness of God. Galatians 3.13 tells us that he became a curse for us. He became the curse. That there was a moment in time established before the foundation of the world where God the Father and God the Son would know separation. Where Jesus as sin on the cross would be judged by God. And God would turn his back. Now here's what I want you to, to get in the, in the glory of Psalm 22. It begins with, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Don't turn from me. Don't be with me. Three, three different times he's going to say, uh, don't be far from me. Don't be far from me. Don't be far from me. As the Messiah... As God in the flesh is drawing near to the point of death. And then he's going to die. And the moment he dies, in Psalm 22, uh, verse 21, you'll see a proclamation. Do you see it? He says, you have answered me. What was the answer the cry was not, save me from pain, save me from the moment of death. The cry was exactly what Jesus Christ was going to do from the cross when he said, Father, into your hands I what? I commend my spirit. And at that moment, Son has placed himself in the Father's hands. And if the sacrifice is acceptable, which it is, then he's going to do what? He's going to raise him up. He said, you will not leave your Holy One to seek corruption. So, the fulfillment of the prayer, where are you, don't be far from me, is the resurrection. The cry, the pain, is the night, uh, uh, the day of agony, or the night of before sorrow in the evening, but joy comes in the morning, that, that he's going through the passion, the time of suffering. But God was ready. As soon as, as soon as he died, he was faithful. You have heard me. You're with me. So let's take a look at it. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from helping me and from the words of my groaning? Man, he's... He's feeling abandoned by the Lord. Remember, he became sin. Remember, he became the curse. Oh, my God. I cry in the daytime, 
but you do not hear. And in the night season, I'm not silent. No matter what, day or night, I'm calling out to the Lord. <clears throat> but then, I, you got to see this next part. If you don't see this next part, you don't get it. See the word but in verse 3? But, that word but means in contrast to, to how I'm feeling. In contrast to feeling abandoned. In contrast to the feeling that, that you're not here with me. In contrast to that, he says, you are holy. But you are holy. Not charging God with wrong. Not saying, God, you don't know what you're doing. Or you're not paying attention to what's, to, to what's going on. No, he's not. He's saying, but, but you're holy. And at that particular moment, he who knew no sin had become sin. You are holy. You are enthroned in the praises of Israel. And our fathers trusted in you. They trusted and you delivered them. They cried to you and were delivered. They trusted in you and were not ashamed. So the concept that he says is you are holy. You dwell in the praises of your people. And all those who have ever gone before, they trusted you. And you delivered And the implication is, so am I. I trust you. When they pulled out the beard, when they drove the nails, when they scourged the back, it's all fulfillment of prophecy. Isaiah 53, we're going to take a look at it in a moment. It's all fulfillment, which means it was all God-ordained, God-purposed. The Bible says, by His stripes we are what? Healed. So it was the healing, God's plan for our healing from sin that He's accomplishing. So I trust in you. I trust, just like the fathers before, I trust in you. And then He gives an I am statement nobody ever points to. You see, it's in the next verse. He goes again with the word, but in contrast, you are holy, but... I am a worm and no man. There are a couple of words for worm in the Hebrew. Rima is the most common. That's not the word he uses here. He uses the word tola'ath. Tola'ath. Tola'ath is called the crimson worm. Real worm that exists. Kind of looks like a grub. Not like an earthworm. Small. Red. Like blood red. This particular worm has a a pretty incredible life. At some point, one time in its life, and only once, this worm is going to attach itself to wood. To a stick, to a trunk, to a fence post. Always wood. It attaches itself so, so tightly to this piece of wood that to take it off kills it. So it adheres itself to the wood. And it forms a shell over it that is crimson, color of blood. And it lays its eggs. And when those eggs hatch and its young come out, the young stay there underneath the shell, this crimson shell. And they feed on the crimson worm, which is still alive. 
So they they feed on the crimson worm and and grow until they're able three days. And at the end of three days, the worm has died. The adherence to the wood lets go and leaves behind it a little white thing looks like a snowflake behind on the wood. And even that eventually falls off. Kind of strange he would just use that particular worm. I am a worm and no man. He has been humbled. Sometimes we forget because we get to watch so many Jesus movies that he didn't hang on the cross in a loincloth. You know that, right? He hung naked in front of everybody. They didn't wear their, you know, nothing. When he was scourged, he was scourged naked. So when they say that he was marred more than any man, do you honestly believe as the Romans are scourging him, beating him with a cat of nine tails, they only do his back? Are you kidding me? The Romans were cruel. They're not known for kindness. That whole concept of 39 lashes, that's Jewish, not Roman. Romans beat you until you confessed. You know what the Bible says about Jesus when that beating was going on? Like a lamb before his shearers is silent, he did what? So he opened not his mouth. Did he have anything to confess? No. So they beat him until they were tired of beating him. They beat him so far that Pilate was pretty sure that he had satisfied the bloodlust of the people watching. So he brought him to what is called the Eki Homo Arch. And he presented him to the people. And when he presented him to the people, he said, Behold the man. Eke Homo. He was sure they would say, That's enough. Because of the way he had been beaten. But they didn't. What did they say? Crucify him. It's not enough yet. It wasn't. Sin had to, had to be taken all the way to death to pay the price for. So as he says, I'm a worm, I'm a humbled. I'm not a man. Nobody looks at me. Nobody thinks much of me. Despised by his own creation. I am a reproach of men and despised by the people. All the people who see me ridicule me. See, one of the reasons they chose crucifixion is they, they would put you on a cross right in a thoroughfare, usually where people would walk by, so people could look at you. And they'd say mean things to you. That's what he's talking about here when he says, all who see me ridicule me. They shoot out the lip, they shake their head, and they say, tell me if this don't sound familiar. He trusted in the Lord, let him rescue him. Let him deliver him, since he delights in him. Well, if it doesn't sound familiar, it's Matthew twenty-seven forty-three, and it's not similar. It's the exact words they spoke to Christ while he was on the cross. 
not ones like them, the exact ones, written 800 years before crucifixion was invented. Pretty crazy. He trusted in the Lord. Let him deliver him. He was despised by the people. Let's hold your finger here for a minute and just flip over to the to the right. We'll look at another. Uh, <coughs> we'll look at another couple of prophets. So flip over first. We'll go to Daniel. Go to Daniel nine, and Daniel's prophecy of the Messiah. Now Daniel doesn't exist at the time that that David wrote the Psalm, but it, it's good I think for us to be able to see it. Look what he says. In Daniel 9, 24. He says, 70 weeks, or a Shabuim, are determined for your people and for your holy city. Um, I don't want to spend a lot of time on it, but uh, the word Shabuim is like the word decade for us. If I said, 70 decades are determined for your people, you guys would know what I mean, right? So when it says, 70 Shabuim, it's the Hebrew word, but Hebrew didn't, don't think in tens. They think in sevens. So it's 77 year periods of time are determined for your people. It's a prophetic word. For what purpose? For your holy people and the holy city. So for the nation of Israel and Jerusalem. What's the point? To finish transgression. That's a new order on earth. To make an end of sin. To, to wipe sin out, to make reconciliation for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy. So know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the command to restore and build Jerusalem until the Messiah, there will be seven weeks and 62 weeks. Seven plus 62, 483 years. So 483 years later, Messiah was born. And after the 62 weeks, Messiah will be karat. Karat means put to death. To be cut off from the people is to be put to death. Put to death for a capital crime. But he's going to, for himself, it says no, but not for himself. And the people of the prince who is to come will destroy the city and the sanctuary. And the end of it will be a flood, a dissipation. The nations spread out around the world. Until the end of the war, desolations are determined. And he goes on talking, gives, gives more prophecy about the end time. But here he's telling us the day Messiah is going to come. Uh, Sir Robert Anderson did all the math and he came up with April 6, 32 AD. Now, whether or not he's right in his math or not, we don't know. But he said, April 6, 32 AD is a date he can point to that we celebrate as Palm Sunday. Remember Palm Sunday, right? Jesus came walking into Jerusalem. And they said, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. A proclamation that Messiah has come. Messiah is here. Well, go to your left from Daniel. Go to Isaiah. In Isaiah, we'll take a look at Isaiah 53 real quick. And then we'll wrap up Psalm 22. Isaiah 53 says this, Who has believed our report? Who would believe it? They wouldn't believe this if we told them. And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? The arm of the Lord, the power of God to save. For he will grow up. Who? He who? Who's he talking about? 
the arm of the Lord. Right? The Savior. The Bible only talks about one Savior, God. God is our Savior. So the arm of the Lord. He will grow up before Him like a tender plant. And as a root out of dry ground. He has no form or comeliness. So when we see Him, there's no beauty that we should desire Him. He is despised and rejected by men. A man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And we hid, as it were, our faces from Him. I guarantee when Pilate pulled him out and said, Eke homo, people weren't looking. People were looking away. We hid as it were our faces from him. He was despised, hated. And we did not esteem him. We gave no value to him. Surely he has borne our grief and carried our sorrow. But we thought him or we esteemed him stricken that God judged him smitten by God and afflicted but he was wounded for our transgression he was bruised for our sin our iniquity the chastisement for our peace was on him and by his stripes we are healed all pointing to the fulfillment Messiah Messiah would come the Messiah would die. And in Psalm 22, <clears throat> we get to see his words from the cross. He says in verse 9, But you, now looking to God again personally, but you are he who took me out of the womb. You made me to trust while on my mother's breast. I was cast upon you from my birth. From my mother's womb, you have been my God. Be not far from me. Second time. Be close. Stay close to me. Be not far from me, for trouble is near and there is none to help. Many bulls have surrounded me. Now he describes the enemies, those who have done the work to him, the crucifixion as animals, acting like animals. The people arresting and condemning Jesus are simply wild beasts attacking their Creator. Strong bulls of Bashan have encircled me. They gape at me. That means uh, uh, they open their maw to devour. Like a lion coming at you to eat you. Their mouth open wide uh, like a raging and roaring lion. And then he gives a description of the crucifixion. Look, I am poured out like water. Weak. Water doesn't stand on itself, right? So water, when they say I'm poured out like water, it's I'm weak. I can't. Hold myself up. All my bones are out of joint. He's speaking of his instability. Instability beside the fact that they probably pulled out his shoulders out of socket and pushing himself up with his feet from the nail to get a breath um, was becoming more and more difficult. If your shoulders have been <coughs> pulled out of joint, you can't pull up with your arm. So now you're limited to pull up with your legs. That's why they would break their legs to kill him. He says, my heart is like wax. It's talking about psychological weakness and describing the, the medical condition that takes place. Because ultimately, when a, when a medical doctor looks at the crucifixion, Jesus died of a broken heart. His heart ruptures. That's what he dies of. They poked him, right? The, the spear pierced his side and what came out? Blood and water. The pericardial sac had ruptured and blood and water came out. My strength 
is dried up like a pot shirt. It's like uh, fragile pottery. He says, I'm as strong as a fragile piece of pottery. You ever drop pottery? <laughs> just breaks. It's no strength. He says, uh, my tongue clings to my jaws. I, I, I'm not speaking. And when Jesus talked from the cross, he had a specific purpose. It was not just rambling. It was not just speaking. You have brought me to the dust of death. I am dying. I am dying. For dogs have surrounded me. Dogs, interesting word that's used because dogs was the term utilized to describe Gentiles. Who's around the cross? Romans. The congregation of the wicked has enclosed me. Now, whenever he talks about the congregation in the Old Testament, he's talking about the assembly of the children of Israel. So I have dogs, Gentiles around me, and the congregation of the wicked, the the Jews, who are uh, also have enclosed me. And they did what? Pierced my hands and feet. At the time this was written, the, the capital punishment was stoning. So if David was writing about an event where somebody is being put to death, he would have said, they stoned me with rocks. Not they pierced my hands and feet. Piercing hands and feet, that's for crucifixion. He says, I can count all my bones. The idea is twofold. One, not one bone is going to be broken in the Messiah. The scripture told us that. But more than that, you can see them. And you can't see him because he's starving to death slowly. Why can you see all his bones? Well, they scourged him. About the time, the, the closest depiction of a legitimate crucifixion, that the one Jesus went through, which is not traditionally, every crucifixion was not like that. The closest thing to it was the passion. And if you watched it, there were times you couldn't watch anymore. If you're human, <laughs> there were times you couldn't watch them scourge. I remember specifically one of the strikes of the cat of nine tails peels away his skin and exposes his ribs. You can count all my bones. Because if you're watching me, you can see them. That's how tore up he was on the cross. You can count them. They look and stare at me. They divide my garments among them. And for my clothing they cast lots. Sound familiar? Again, every gospel, you can read about it. Them dividing his garments and casting lots for his clothing. Then in verse 19, again, he he turns from crucifixion to the Lord. But you, O Lord, do not be far from me. It's it's a son talking to his dad. Uh, The really hard part's coming, God. And I'm trusting you. I'm trusting you. Oh, my strength, hasten to help me. Deliver me from the sword, my precious life, from the power of the dog. See, they're going to kill me. But you're not going to leave me dead. Save me from the lion's mouth. What was he talking about there? Well, your enemy is walking about as a roaring lion, looking at who he may devour. Save me from the lion. The devil thinks he's one. He don't know. He's about to get knocked out. From the horns of the wild oxen. It's a phrase. Nobody knows what that is. The horns of the wild oxen. 
we put it there so so it makes sense. King James used to put unicorn. Um, other things put different descriptions. Usually that description is a description given uh, to describe some type of demonic activity. The horns of the wild oxen. The Rephaim. The abode of the dead. You are... <clears throat> Save me. Save me from them. And then at the end of verse 21, you have answered. And from 22 on, it's the resurrection. It's the fulfillment of the promises. Three days later and the worm has fallen off the wood. And though your sins were as scarlet, they shall be white as snow. He says, I will declare your name to my brethren. I'm going to tell everybody about you. Among the first words at the resurrection, Jesus told the women who came to the tomb, Go tell my brethren, I am alive. In the midst of the assembly, I will praise you. In the middle of the people of Israel, you who fear the Lord, praise Him. All the descendants of Jacob, glorify Him. And fear Him, all you offspring of Israel. For he did not hate, look at, he has not despised nor abhorred the affliction of the afflicted. What's that mean? He didn't hate Jesus. And that's why he punished him. He didn't despise or abhor the affliction of the afflicted. He did it out of love. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, to save us. You and me. He didn't despise the affliction of the afflicted. He loved him. Nor did he hide his face from him. But when he cried to him, he heard. Jesus died. The Lord raised him from the dead. My praise shall be of you in the great assembly. And I will pay my vows before those who fear him. He's describing a thanksgiving sacrifice. A feast of celebration. The poor shall eat and be satisfied. When? You think that they're just talking about giving the poor a meal? That's not what he's talking about. I can open up the doors and hand out money to the poor all day. And the next day, there will be just as many people in line again. And a week later, the same people will come back. Because the poor are never satisfied until what until messiah come then the poor can be satisfied jesus said the poor you have with you always until jesus comes and the poor is over then the poor the meek do what they inherit the earth The meek shall inherit the earth. The poor, blessed are the poor in spirit. We look at at Scripture and we see the fulfillment of those promises. The poor will be satisfied. And those who seek the Lord, they'll say praise to the Lord. Let your heart live forever. All the ends of the world. Is this just the Jews he's talking to? All the ends of the world will remember and turn to the Lord. All the families of the nations. That's the goyim. That word is Gentile. All the families of the Gentiles, that word nations, goyim, it's a word for Gentiles, shall worship before him. 
For the kingdom is the Lord's and He rules over the nations. The fulfillment of the promise. All the prosperous of the earth will eat and worship. So it's not just the poor. It's not just the poor. Who else is invited? The rich. All the world. They will eat and worship. And those who go down to the dust, those who have died, they will bow down before Him. What's the Bible say? Every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of the Father. Even he who cannot keep himself alive, even the one who couldn't save himself, and a posterity will serve him. Literally, let me give you this. A seed will serve him, and it will be recounted of the Lord to the next generation. And they will come and declare his righteousness to a people who will be born. Three different groups. There will be a seed, then another generation, and all the way out to a people who will be born. So the fulfillment, the promise, the, 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 the work that Messiah wrought is going to have effects from Him forward and from Him backward. All the people of the earth will have that opportunity to receive the work that He has done. They will come and declare His righteousness that He has done this. Do you want me to say that last phrase another way? Because it's the same words Jesus said. They will declare His righteousness to all the earth. It is finished. Sound familiar? Man, Psalm 22 is amazing. The, The words of Christ from the cross before His back ever wore flesh. Exciting, exciting piece of scripture. We'll do Psalm 23 and 24 and we'll see what happens next week as we go on and we look at the rest of the trilogy of the Psalms of the Shepherd.